to record on this computer. Welcome you all who are joining us late. If you we're recording this, so if you're watching the recording, thanks for watching the recording. But uh, join us live. That's always fun. Uh, we are studying the life of Jacob together with Martin Luther. Let me get the logos here fired up, and let's go. Let's do this thing. And we're going to skip. Uh, we're going to kind of lightly touch on a few passages this morning. Uh, let's see where we were last week here. Perpetual. We're looking for the word L. I thought I had it. There it is. L. Okay. So here's where we ended last week. This is a marvelous point that Luther's making for us. That. Uh, so okay. Remember the context. Laban has chased down Jacob, who's fled. He's go, he's followed him all the way down, and so they're in Gilead on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And he stopped him there, and he's accused him of stealing his stuff, taking him stuff. And remember, Laban is just this ferociously, ravenously greedy monster of a man. And Jacob's now shaking. He's fearful. I mean, J here's the the problem with Jacob. He's squeezed between these these violent men, Laban on the one hand, and now he where he's headed back, Esau on the other. So, so this is a tricky spot. He's he's in a okay, but the Lord is going to rescue him. So the Lord he uh, we conquer all because of our leader and, and Lord, the Son of God, who Himself bore the same reproaches and conquers in all his saints. We are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us, and that conquering that he does is just marvelous. Uh, let us be counted among the Jacobites and not among the Labanites. Let us not be disturbed because of the devil, together with all the ungodly hypocrites, is regarded and worshipped as God and the, and as holy and righteous in the judgment of the whole world. So that's, so that's where we ended last week. So now we're going <clears> to... <throat> pick up on this. There's a remains a question concerning the word L. That's the word that's translated here in our English as power. It's a funny thing because you see L and that just means God. It's the singular form for God. Elohim is the plural, which is normally the word that's used for God. But there's a lot of work to figure out what how so if you did it literally, it would be something like it is my it is my L, my it is my God to do you harm. So it's probably it's the probably the easiest way to think about this is that word L has taken on the sense of strength. God is strong after all, and so that that is a connection to His divine attributes. But Luther's going to kind of run through all of the uh, all of the different options for how the grammarians think about it. So I, I want to move kind of quick through um, through through the this section here. Um, I cannot deduce anything certain to bring out the meaning of this idiom. And this is the point is that Luther's going to say it's it's obviously a, a figure of speech and we don't we don't see it necessarily anywhere else so we have to do our best. I leave it to the rabbis, the Hebrew grammarians, although I'm of the opinion that they don't have perfect knowledge of Hebrew grammar, at least not in this word. So great is Babylon and the confusion of interpretations. So so Luther's lamenting how Babel changed everyone's languages and it's hard to get there. They heap about 20 forms of diction by which they make efforts to explain this one form. And you see this sometimes. It's really interesting in the grammars where they'll, they'll describe a certain form of a word just because they have that form of the word 
and it has to mean this. And so they'll reverse in, they'll reverse the grammar to get that meaning. So it's, uh, and so Luther points out that it seems like that's what the rabbis are doing here. Um, at what time L meant God, and in this passage, the meaning is my hand is according to God. The grammarians and those who follow the rule strictly say it signifies according to my ability. And I concede this for the passage in Micah 2 agrees. They do evil because God is in their hands. That is, they have power. They're powerful. Likewise, Deuteronomy 28, there will not be la'el, strength in your hand. So that that word God at some time must have just kind of meant strength. Uh, uh, accordingly, it must be taken as a special idiom. And he says examples in Latin, and he gives some uh, Latin examples of a similar kind of figure of speech. Such changes take place in all languages. The Germans say, Gelt, not so, I'll pay it to you. The word Gelt, money, is employed adverbally. Germans also say, God, you should leave it alone. Here the word God takes on the nature of an interjection. Now, I don't credit myself with judgment in Hebrew grammar, except I see that the grammarians are toiling and sweating, but have not yet worked it out because of the diversity between the idioms, which the Hebrews were accustomed to employ in daily usage, and the logical analysis of the grammarians. So here's, here's Luther just working on some Hebrew grammar. He gives another example uh, here. Therefore, the Hebrew, um, some explain it as a rod, some as a scepter, others different. Therefore, the Hebrew language has largely been ruined, and it is not yet entirely restored. This is a very interesting. Yeah, Amber asked, is this connection because God is the one who gives power? I think that's got to be the connection there. Exactly right. So that's what's going on in the background. Uh, but look at the, here's an inter very interesting thing. If it were not for the New Testament, our rabbis would nowhere be able to derive certain meanings from the Old Testament. The New Testament has contributed a great deal to the restoration and elucidation of the Hebrew language of the old and the Old Testament, because we the Greek is more well attested and we have more kind of surrounding texts for the Greek. We can get at the Greek of the New Testament and we see there how the Old Testament is translated into Greek also because we have the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we can we can map the Hebrew words and the Greek words onto each other, and that gets us back to the Hebrew. It's a very interesting point. And also a thing to note that, and this is an interesting, I don't know what to make of this, but most of the, you know, most of the church fathers were working in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. Most of the, I mean, the, the New Testament writers, when they quote the Old Testament, I'd say 70, 80% of the time they quote the Septuagint, the 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 uh Greek Old Testament. And and it makes sense. All of them had access to the Hebrew, and so they could have done their own translation. But I suppose it's like it's like me or your pastor, whenever he's preaching in English, he just uses the English Bible and quotes it instead of doing his own translation of the Hebrew, unless it's necessary to bring out a, a difference. So when they're writing in Greek, they just they quote the Greek version of the Bible that they have. So, so anyway, that's what's that's what's interesting that 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 the Greek version of the Old Testament becomes really the primary Christian text. In recent times, that's been pushed back upon, and that pushback probably started with Luther, because Luther, for the Old Testament, goes back to the Hebrew, and for the New Testament, goes back to the Greek. That he's going back to those originals there, and so. So that has marked the modern church. The, the ancient church would just really rely on the on the Greek. And there's some, if you can get some really nerdy conversations about what is the true, uh, what's the true Old Testament, the Hebrew version or the Greek version. But we just avoid that question altogether. Now, 
We and thank the Lord that we have both. What did I do? I did something wrong in the group. Um, I shall not oppose if anyone takes L for ability or for God. This is certain. L is derived by Sinok Sinko from Aal, which means strength. From this abstract noun, they derive the denominative or adjective L, strong. So we have translated Isaiah 96, mighty God, might, absolutely, with Lamed, or prepositive, uh, prepositive participle, signifies might, strength, or God, etc., etc. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Eli, Eli, that's the text from Psalm 22 that Jesus prays. From this comes Elohim. It's approximately what the Hebrew grammarians say of this passage. And if they have obtained its meaning, it's well. If not, it's the surest arguments that they have not yet attained to the true certain knowledge of the Hebrew language. Just very interesting. From the Old Testament, they cannot confirm this interpretation. But from the New Testament, it is proved that L signifies God, etc., etc., etc. Okay. Um, all right. Now, back to the narrative here. Uh, with God, that's a, this is where we want to jump in. Uh, so Laban says, therefore, whether this signifies God or strength or whether it's an abstract and the divine name has been degenerated into an interjection and signifies ability about this, I'm not going to quarrel. I leave it undecided. In the German translation, we've translated approximately with this meaning, and I, with God's help, would have enough strength to be able to do you harm. So much about the grammar. My ability is present, he says, or my power is from God. But whether... But whatever a hypocrite said or feels about God's name is wholly uh, simulated and deceitful because hypocrites do not have God. So when Laban says, look, it's in my power to do you harm, he's lying. He's he, It's in my L to do you harm. It's He's lying about that because he doesn't have God because he's a, it's a crook. I could avenge this wrong, he means to say, that you took away my daughters and gods, but the God of your father is under threat, forbidden me to do violence to you. Now, we'll remember that it wasn't just that God prevented him to, from doing violence. God also prevented him from speaking any un, any cruel thing to him. But he has ignored that altogether and has spoken poorly already to Jacob. What wrong? In other words, what was the wrong that Jacob did to Laban? That you were not willing to be a slave and an ass forever? That you refuse to endure servitude so that you might sweat day and night and run and toil and bear the insults of my sons as well as my insults? This is the greatest sin. And remembering, remembering that that for the um for the one whose God is their belly, for the one who is so torn in on themselves, everything becomes a reference, everything is self-referential. So how do you how do you become righteous? By doing right to me. How do you become a sinner? By taking stuff from me. This is Laban. You should not have robbed me of the servitude in which I wish to detain you and my daughters. This, to be sure, is an atrocious crime. Hear the sarcasm, please. Not to be willing to consign oneself into the most abject servitude and most cruel tyrant. But this is characteristic of hypocrites to accuse others because they stand in the way of their lusts. Don't get between a man and his lusts. This is the this is the the great danger that Jacob knew he was in. That's why he was so slow to leave, that God had to tell him to leave. And then he was so nervous to talk to his uh, to his wives about it. Then they're ready to go. Everything the angels are sending him out, and he's still so nervous and so 
afraid to leave. Jill says he takes the name of the Lord in vain to manipulate Jacob. It's this is a this is a perfect example of breaking the second commandment and using the Lord's name in vain. That's a, just perfect example of it. Great point, Jill. Okay, now, um, Luther says, uh, "Oh yeah, Lu uh, enough of the description of Nabal." Remember, of course, if you're just joining us, Luther, Nabal was the man that almost got killed by King David, also for his greed, and his name spelled backwards is Laban, and Luther just loves to make that joke, Nabal, Laban, back and forth all the time. So uh, enough description, Nabal, perfect picture of a pope and a hypocrite, a real pope and a false hypocrite. Now, <laughs> so pope, hypocrite, real pope, false hypocrite. It's just Luther goofing around. Now I want to give ear to a pious man as well. So now we get to verse, uh, we get to verse thirty-one. Jacob answered Laban, and says, "Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your God shall be put to death in the presence of our kinsmen. Point out what I have that is yours and take it." Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them, the idols. Uh oh. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two maidservants, but he did not find them. So dun, 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 he goes searching. Now, what do we think about this? What do we think about first Jacob's response? Why did I flee? So, so here, Jacob is going to, he's going to basically answer two accusations. He, he, Laban has heaped on him all of these accusations of, of he does everything wrong and jacob is going to basically answer two i left why i was afraid and then and and here's the here's the accusation that he makes back to laban i thought that you would take your daughters from me by force that was my fear that's why i left in secret that you wouldn't let me leave and that you would in fact take back my wives your daughters from me which would be wicked and then to the accusation of stealing the household gods, Jacob makes this oath, which he should not have made. It's just too much. But he's kind of wrapped up in defending his own innocence here because he didn't know anything of Rachel bringing these, these idols with him. And so he says, if you find them, they're going to be put to death. Uh, but again, that's too much. But we'll, let's, let's, let's let Luther take us through this. Uh, this is a brief excuse for that. So Nancy says, Jacob sends Leah's tent, no much of Rachel. The Rachel's tent comes next. So we, we just stop for commentary and we'll get to that next. So you didn't miss anything. We just haven't got there, Nancy. This is a brief excuse for that mass or wagon load of insults and reproaches, which Laban hurled against the holy man. What was I to do? Yes, I was afraid. He makes a humble confession and does not clear himself carefully concerning the theft. But he buries all the insults and injuries within himself and only says, I was afraid. He doesn't, he doesn't argue back. He doesn't build a case. He just says, I was afraid, simply. If he had been more vehement, even as many men are exceedingly impatient about injustices, he could have attacked Laban in turn and thrown back all the denunciations. Stop speaking ill of a man uh, who has deserved very well of you, he might have said. For in the judgment of God and that of your 
and that of all men you are a sacrilegious, a robber, a tyrant, an, uh, an avaricious monster? For you have sold your daughters and regarded them as most abject slaves and beasts of burden, and in return for their hard toils and sweat, you have no thought of repaying them with due rewards, but with permanent imprisonment. In other words, there could there were so many things that Jacob could have said against Laban, but he doesn't. He just absorbs it. He just he just eats it. The only thing he says was, "I was afraid that you would steal your daughters back." And in this little in this little mention of why he was afraid, he's not even blaming uh, blaming Laban. He says, "You probably wouldn't have, but I was afraid. I was afraid that you might do this harm." But in that little thing is all the accusations of of all of his wickedness there. If Jacob would have listed all the harm that Laban had done. This would have provided endless material for disputes and quarrels. Therefore, we're reminded that we should, and here's Luther taking the example of Jacob here for us, that we should also patiently bear the insults as well as the contempt and pride of our adversaries. We are not in the business of defending ourselves. It's not what we're called to do. So we bear, we bear with patience. This is, again, what we had just before this lesson. Luther's talking about how Jesus himself bores, bears all the insults and contempt, so we're called to the same to the same patience. Remember how the the one time in the Bible where Jesus is given to us as as our example is that he uh, he opened not his mouth when he was suffering, and Peter says we follow his example. So quiet suffering. But the truth, nevertheless, must not must not be passed over in silence. Nor will the lust for speaking ill in our adversaries pass by with impunity, even though we throw back none of their denunciations. For there is one who will look into these things and judge them. God is our judge. And, th and that is our confidence, that God is the one who, um, who, who, who has vengeance and justice. Even though it might not come when we want it to, it might take a little longer than we think it should, etc. So we don't we are not defending ourselves because we have the Lord who defends us. Therefore, Jacob says, whatever I did of these things, I did with a certain amount of fear and trepidation. So he does not accuse Laban. And yet he indicates, he indicates that Laban must be severely blamed and accused because he had to fear that his father-in-law might take away his daughters. I was afraid that you might take them away. Now Laban could say, what, what are you talking about? I would never do such a thing. But everyone knows, oh, yeah, well, that's exactly what Laban would do. That's, a, that's exactly how Laban is. So that this fear of Jacob is a is a right fear. Now, I mean, not not only that, I mean, Jacob's got a fear that Laban's going to take away his, what, his life and everything. Laban. This is assuredly most atrocious. Quietly, therefore, and with a fine figure of speech, he, Jacob, charges Laban with the worst crimes in such a way that by excusing and clearing himself, he accuses him more violently than he could have done by any invective. So that this little, I was afraid of this, was is more of a kidney punch than anything else. For so the apologies of the godly are generally the most serious accusations against the ungodly. <laughs> in this way, the Pope and his accomplices are at the present time accusing us of heresy, blasphemy, arrogance, and sedition. But if I reply, I'm not a heretic, I'm not seditious, as Christ clearly expresses and replies to the Jews, John 8, 
I have. Da, da, da. Uh, I have not a demon. This should certainly be done, for we should not assent to the revilings against the doctrine and the truth of God, or be silent in such a case. Then in my brief refutation, I am charging the Pope himself with all the crimes and reproaches of which he has accused us. It's this bad conscience business, the conscience like a dirty window where you see yourself on it, etc. Therefore, this, what Jacob says here, is a splendid apology. For he quietly appeals to the conscience of the hypocrite, and on the quietly appeals to the conscience. See, it's that here's another chance for Laban to do the right thing. He, uh, and on the basis of all his deeds, he charges him with cruelty and tyranny. Your conscience, he says, is our witness that you treated us unkindly, so that I had just cause to consider flight. For I thought to myself, once Laban has found out that I'm fleeing, he'll seize my wives and all my goods and throw me into prison. Does it become a good man so to treat a faithful, saintly man, one who is industrious and careful and looking after the family properly, that he is compelled to fear violence and injury from his father-in-law, lest he, forgetful of the closest ties, deserts, and storge, that's that word for natural affection, that one of those words for for love in Greek, toward his son-in-law or his daughters, take the wives away from their husband? Is this to be praised or excused? No. It is most disgraceful, and it conflicts with all reason and honor. For a daughter who has been handed over to a husband is no longer in the power of her father. The father does not have the right of demanding the daughter back or of taking her away. It was therefore a horrible cruelty that this excellent man, Jacob, should find himself involved in the danger that he might again lose his dear wives or children. But that's that's constantly the threat that hangs over him from Laban. He, it's the, what is that, sword of Damocles, you know, that's just, that it's it's this constant threat that's always hanging over his head. It, and, and it's just, and it's followed him, even in his running away. Uh, Moses indeed did not expressly say this, but it's quite reasonable. And the Holy Spirit seems to indicate that, <clears throat> excuse me, that it was not without cause that Jacob adduced this reason to excuse his flight, namely that he was afraid. So that, what? So that this is true. That this, what, what, what Jacob's fear is a true fear. This is not a, he's not lying about this. He's, he's telling the truth. Evidently, this is the way a father or a father-in-law to feel towards his son-in-law and his daughters who obey their husband and who in the household of their father are regarded as slaves by whose services the family property has grown in excellent fashion that you should think of tearing them away from their husband. That hypocrite is assuredly the most horrible of all monstrosities, surpassing all beasts and tyrants with his cruelty. Indeed, he is more cruel than cruelty itself. I'll tell you that Luther is not impressed with Laban. But if there had been ever so small a spark of humanity or kindness in him, in Laban, he should have been influenced and moved by such goodness, deference, faithfulness, and patience on part of excellent and patient Jacob. But he is in no way moved by all these. So he pursues his son-in-law to bring him back to the imprisonment of his servitude or to take his daughters away from him. This, therefore, Jacob feared, and he wanted to say, you yourselves are at fault. You oppressed us with such a slavish fear, and you threatened that you would take away all my goods if I were to go away. 
Therefore, I was afraid. Now, I just, I just want to pause there, and see. Look, now, look, we had, we had one verse. Uh, uh, Jacob answered and said to Laban, "Because I was afraid, I said, perhaps you would take our daughters from me by force." So we had that one little verse. I don't know how many were twelve words or something in there, and Luther has given us three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10 paragraphs taking us into the into the human dynamics of this whole thing and and making applications for how it goes and what it looks like uh what it looks like for us it, 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 it's sometimes fun for me to think of like being in the classroom there here's luther he's 50 years old or 55 years old and he's he's teaching through and it's almost like you would just say, Luther, have you met Laban? <laughs> have you, did you meet, are you old enough to have met Jacob? Were you there? But he, he sinks down. You, you, when he's describing this, you, he's so down into the text that you, you can almost like see him imagining this conflict. And there's, there's, there's really something there for us. One of the great dangers that we have when we're reading the scriptures is that we is that it seems so far away from us. We can let Luther get us there. I mean, I suppose we can even imagine sitting in the classroom in Wittenberg watching old man Luther lecture on these things. And like after the class, we'd be like, Do you see how his how his ears get so red whenever he talks about Laban? That like the he he he's so defensive of Jacob. It's like you know. So we we can imagine going back there, but even better is to just imagine going all the way back to being there when Laban, in his pious, fake, hypocritical nonsense, is making these accusations of Jacob, and Jacob, with, you know, whispering prayers to God. Is just responding back with this in this hu humility. It's just, it's just good for us to know that there's no that to close this gap between us and the things that happen in the scripture. Okay, so that that is good. We you know normally when we're when we're just reading the scriptures, we're just and if we were just kind of cruising through, we just we just cruise through, but. But slower and faster. I think that's always the way to go in the Bible. We we have to read it a little bit faster so we get the big chunks, like all of Genesis in one sitting. But then also to move slower so we can so we can smell it. So we can smell the text. That's the idea. That's a, I was trying to figure out a couple of years ago. And I had a vicar trying to figure out how to teach him how to preach, and I I said you gotta you gotta smell it. You gotta get so you have to your imagination has to get so close to the text that it's that it is immediate i don't know how to do that but luther's teaching us okay so so far the accusation why did you leave now the second accusation what about stealing my household idols that's really what he's worried about because he he he's greedy you know he wants a and he and he and he uses this now there was an idol missing, so this is a true accusation, but because Rachel stole one. 
but he's going to use this as a a way to blast against Jacob. So in the second place, he, Jacob says, in regard to your accusation of, of sacrilege against me, that I destroyed your worship, I'll act as follows. Anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. Luther, here the Holy Spirit describes the human side of the saints. In other words, this was foolish and rash. And we learn in we learn in the Bible and in mythology and in history that you should never promise to execute someone. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll offer as a sacrifice the first living creature that comes out of the house. Don't make promises like that. We, uh, boy, oh boy, the, so much trouble can come from from making an unadvised oath, from from just making a promise that you are not authorized to make or that you shouldn't make. And here the Holy Spirit describes the human side of the saints that Jacob does exactly that. For however sublime they are in faith and spirit, talking about the saints, they nevertheless not only err and are ignorant of many things, but they even take a fall according to the flesh. Jacob thinks he's beyond all blame, suspicion, and danger, and that in this respect, satisfaction had already been rendered to Laban. So he makes the offer that the one whom, with whom Laban finds the idol should be killed. But in this manner, his very dear wife is handed over to death by her husband, because Rachel took the idol and Jacob didn't know it. Um, Susan says, the evolutionary mentality reinforced by inventions and technology makes our generations think those people were so different and less than us somehow. That's exactly right. That's the, talking about this gap between us and the, we're like, oh, those, those, uh, primitive people they they didn't even have flush toilets or whatever so we're so much greater than they are and we have this chronological what uh who who c.s lewis gk chesterton called chronological snobbery we're here we are at the end of the world so we must be much better than them rather than understanding that humanity is getting weaker and weaker and weaker and we have to make up for it with our technological advances but technology remember is cumulative so of course technology is gonna every generation until a big fire comes or a tower of babel but uh but wisdom has to be reborn in every generation and we have we are not even interested in wisdom that's our problem i mean we don't even think about it we but here jacob makes a mistake he he unknowingly hands his wife over to death because he didn't know that she had the idol for if God and so Luther for if God had not intervened and prevented it Jacob would have would thoughtlessly have offered his dear wife Rachel to be slaughtered that is going too far and Jacob concedes too much but he acts in ignorance he didn't know that she had the idol such are the sins of the believers who are sometimes according to the flesh overtaken by tumbles due to ignorance and error Thus, Rachel will also vigorously tell lies later to save her life. But upon this rely, reply, that most saintly Laban, most saintly Laban, that's, again, don't miss the sarcasm, should by all rights have been satisfied. He should have said, why should I make inquiries? Why should I conduct a church, a, a search church? Uh, I hear and accept the testimony of your innocence. 
These are my daughters and grandchildren against whom I was previously too hard to and too harsh. I won't trouble you anymore, nor shall I accuse you of theft. I should have given you the idol in the first place as a going away present. Keep it as a proof of my generosity and the love between us. Not, not a thing. Let, let No, don't let yourself be troubled. No, it's fine. It's great. I, uh, th- you, I, before you came, I had nothing. And now look at all the riches. I'm so s- satisfied. Do what, what can I, what else can I give you to support you on your way to help you? That this is what Laban should have done if he was a human being and he had any sympathy, but no, no, this would have been proper for a father-in-law and a good man, but he can't be satisfied. He's full of demons. This apology of Jacob would have satisfied anyone else. If he heard Jacob saying, I have nothing to do with your idols. But to avoid any suspicion of trickery, Jacob added more and said, I give you permission to search and unpack everything. Proving, and here, and here's where this Luther's read on Jacob is that he is a that he is much more innocent, that he's not a trickster. Here you see his good conscience uh in operation because he's he is he's totally ignorant of the idea that they would the idols would be around. I give you permission to unpack everything. This permission, no one else would have easily given him. I, Luther said, I wouldn't have certainly have said, I do not have your idols. I would not have given him permission to search my goods, or at least I would have conducted the search on my own. It was therefore quite out of place to concede such a privilege to this monster. Or was it not sufficient to hear that Jacob did not have the idols and that he offered the death of the one who had stolen them? But behold, he has no sense of shame. Laban, he just, okay, I'll, I'm going to find these idols. Oh, it'll be great looking through all this stuff. I'll probably find some other stuff that you took, you know? For he goes and searches each tent. I cannot help but be deeply moved. And I am sorry that I cannot measure up to these things with words and paint them adequately in fitting colors. I, this is, I know this, I know this, uh, agony that luther's going through here in fact it happened it happened on sunday i'm preaching along and there's a thing that i want to say and it's there in my brain and it's like i don't how to how do i get that how do i get that thing that is here to there to you how, how do and here's luther i just i don't i can't measure up to these things with words and paint them adequately in fitting colors He's, he's so, rah, how do I express to you my, my frustration at the agony, at the, at the miserableness of Laban and the innocence of Jacob, which is a, which now he, he here's Jacob's innocence. Here's, here's Laban's cruelty. Here's Rachel's mistake or unwise decision. And they, and they're just about to become tragic and you and make no mistake that Laban would find the idol in Rachel's tent and would immediately kill his own daughter in vengeance against Jacob. Can you that 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 is a that is how wicked Laban is, and that is why this is a real threat. And Luther says, I don't know how to give it to you guys. I don't. I would not have made further concessions if he had not been content with my confession. So frank and firm. Jacob yielded altogether more than he should have. First, then, he enters the tent of Jacob himself. It would have been enough if he had found nothing there. But then he goes to the tent of Leah. And in addition to the tent of both the maidservants, in the end, one still remained. Rachel's. 
So he had to cackle his way through this one too. And here the well-being and life of Rachel was in serious danger. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that your that your father would be a life-threatening danger to you? Boy, oh boy. Okay. So that's where we are now. Luther is going to make this point. So the Holy Spirit is at hand and finds a remedy against the permission which Jacob had given when he said, anyone with whom you find your God shall be put to death. Too much had been yielded, but the correction will follow. For God and his angels keep watch when Jacob sleeps. So Luther's going to see how God himself is going to intervene here and rescue Rachel and the family. But can you imagine that Rachel has to be rescued from her father? Yeah, Pastor Jernander says the seeds are seen in how disposable Laban made his daughters in Jacob's marriage. He In the trickery that Laban does when he gives first Leah instead of Rachel and so forth. Uh, Jennifer says, I have a question about the smell test. I enjoy the approach very much. However, I'm a constant reminder of Sola Scriptura and the potential danger of going too far with my imagination. Did Luther offer any advice on striking a good balance? I don't know. If anyone has any reference, I just can't think of it. I can't think of if he, if there's a place where he talks about it. But I will keep my eyes and my nose open for that. It has to do your your. You're compiling all these things now. If we wanted to say, look, I think we we think that Luther is misreading and misjudging the character of these guys. That ba all of modern exegetes have made that conclusion. I don't know if they've actually read Luther, um, so I don't know if they've if they've wrestled through the a totally different idea of Jacob. It just become it's just become the sort of momentum of 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 modern exegetical stuff to read Jacob as a as a tyrant. But I think I was thinking about it today, right with this text and how Jacob responds to Laban that what Luther says matches up and and it also has to do with our understanding of human nature. Okay, now here we're getting to the good stuff. This is what the word uh, sorry, this is the work and skill of God to correct and amend what had been ruined by Jacob's error. He, that he is God, he can make evil matters good when we have spoiled and harmed matters. Now, this is a really confident, I mean, a, a confidence-inducing thing to see, that the Lord takes our sins, our mistakes, our errors, our evil, and he works them for good. That's the promise of Romans 8, which we're working towards. And Luther's going to mention it down a little bit, but this is the this is the great thing. When when we don't we don't sin on purpose, but when we do, the Lord takes that and He is going to somehow use it to bless. To He He delivers, and He and you know maybe He acts. He, we, we you know one of the dangers of sola scriptura. We've discussed this before. Is that, is that we say, well, we know that the Lord works only graciously to, to save and deliver through the word. And um, 
that's true. But then what we do, what we end up doing is we we like put God in the Bible and everything outside of the Bible becomes like naturalistic or evolutionary or God's not there. No, the Lord is working through all these things in our lives. He's he's busy. He's he is the Lord and God of all of history. Uh so in great in the great infirmity characteristic of human affairs, not even the saints can be without many great lapses. We're sinners. Certainly, I've often done many things imprudently and foolishly. Here's Luther confessing his own imprudence and foolishness, concerning which I was much disturbed later. How many of us have not done that? I mean, you just make a you you make a huge mistake. You sin. You offend someone. You say something you shouldn't. I mentioned earlier. You you make a promise that you can't keep that you're not authorized to make. You or whatever. Nor was I, and Luther said, nor was I able to see how I might work my way out and extricate myself from matters that were being hampered by my folly. But the Lord found a means in a way that the error might be corrected. Similarly, and I think all of us can tell these stories about how the Lord actually worked good out of our own foolishness. Similarly, for Rachel, a monstrous and specific danger was begotten from the inconsiderate permission granted her by her husband. Can you imagine? When they, here's Rachel and Leah watching Laban accuse Jacob, and Jacob says, "Look, there's no idols here. You can kill the person you find the idol." And Rachel says, "You know, gulp." <laughs> uh oh, this is a monstrous and specific danger for the savage savageness of this worthless hypocrite was such that he would either have vented his rage on his daughter or he would have wanted his son-in-law to be consigned into slavery for her rescue in life that's probably the way he would go to to order to not lose his slaves or maybe he would have even made jacob kill his own wife and then blamed him for it boy laban what a but God so governs his saints that even though they err and stray, the outcomes are nevertheless salutary or without great loss. It's just amazing. Sorry, I got to. The sun is shining too bright over here. It's nice the sun's out. Uh, let's see what chat's happening here. Uh, isn't this a joyful job of the Holy Spirit to constrain our imaginations to the text? I think the Holy Spirit does do that, and we pray that he would. Um, uh, J Jacob, Pastor Jernander, I suspect that Jacob is a dishonest, it comes from more of a Sunday school lesson than anywhere else. Sunday school lessons are predominantly used to promote good moral behavior. Then the Old Testament lessons become less Christological and more an example of Christian living. I think that's right. Um Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chris says, hardly speaking, it seems like some authors, including Luther, have been read with an understanding that sometimes they're writing formal arguments and sometimes they're writing with poetic imagination. Luther doesn't seem like he would hold himself absolutely every poetic or funny thing he said in the table talks or commentary in Genesis. Chesterton is another like that. This is true. Uh, so um, we do make a distinction between the poetic, um, uh, 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 between the, no, between the didactic and between the oh there's a there, there's a technical term for it but but Luther will talk about uh allegory for example adorning the sermon so there's an adornment and then there's an argument and the argument and the adornment are different things the adornment you sometimes have to let go the argument you 
you keep. And I hope it's uh I I hope it's helpful to think of being in the classroom and hearing these as lectures, because that helps us to receive what what Luther is giving us here rightly. I mean, all the animation and passion and of a of a man walking in the classroom with all these seminarians and lecturing them then. Uh iPhone says it's a beautiful phrase that God and his angels stay awake even when Jacob is asleep. That's that is um uh what is that from Psalm 121? I lift up my eyes to the hills. Uh you the Lord never slumbers nor sleeps. And that's a beautiful that's a beautiful thing. So that the Lord is even when we're sleeping, the Lord is awake and working. God so governs his saints that even though they err and stray, the outcome are nevertheless salutary or without great loss. For all things work together for good, for those who believe, even errors and sins. And this is absolutely certain. For God is accustomed to make all things out of nothing. <laughs> now this is so the way the Lord works is he, he it's the kratio ex nihilo. He he creates out of nothing. And so he can call forth and produce good from evil. In fact, so does the Lord have the practice of making everything out of nothing, that before he makes something of us, he will make us nothing. <laughs> I mean, this is part of what repentance is. The first part of repentance is this emptying us out so that there's nothing there. There's nothing of our works. There's nothing of our efforts. There's nothing of our name. There's nothing of ourselves. So then the Lord adds himself to it so that it's just so that he and he alone is the savior. So, so it's not just that he can make he, that he can make something out of nothing. It's that's what he does. Augustine is especially delighted in this thought. So great is God's goodness. He says that he permits no evil to be done unless he turns it to good. So that's the, so that the Lord has the, that, now this is an amazing so Augustine. I, I gotta go track this down. Against it's contra Julian, the reference here. Let me I'll show you guys the reference. I wonder if I can if it's contra Julian must book five, paragraph fifty. It'd be great to see what, what Augustine is talking about there and, and to track that down too. But do you see what the idea here is? That uh, what Augustine is saying, and Luther's picking up on this, is that if there's evil that happens, the only way that evil happens is if God has permitted that evil so that he can turn it to good. He permits no evil to be done unless he turns it to good so that that every evil that happens is kind of the Lord lets it through the gate because he has the intention to turn that evil to good. It's Jacob erred very imprudently. And as far as he was concerned, he had thrown his beloved wife into danger of death, or at least of disgrace. But a plan has shown him by God that is so cunning that both Laban and the devil himself are deceived. Laban and the devil. The deceiver is deceived. God turns it back on him. It's mind-blowing for me to think of how personally God intervenes in Jacob's life to work it for the better and produce good from evil, yet... He does that for every single one of his children and treats me like this. And I'm his only child, even though he has a million. Exactly. That the Lord is giving this care for, he's doing this for all, for, he is doing this for all of us. He's doing this for all of us. 
Yeah, this is Bill's uh the Isaiah 45 text is a really quite marvelous because we know while we know the Lord is not the source of evil, we know that the Lord will send evil. And that we, and this is part of our Christian life, is that we receive all things, even evil things, from the Lord's hand. And and Job is our Job is our example in this, that he that that even though the devil sends all this disastrous nonsense, Job says, shall we receive good from the Lord and not evil? So, so we receive even evil from the Lord's hand, knowing that he works it for good. I wonder if I can track this down, this uh, Augustine thing, and maybe we can start with that next week. But this is a good spot to stop this week, at least stop recording, and then we can talk about some of these things more. So let's, let's say a prayer, and then... Uh, and then we'll I'll turn off the the lockdown and we'll discuss. Oh Lord, we give you thanks that you are always uh with us, that you are always forgiving us, that you are always working in our own lives for your good ends and for your glory and for our comfort. We give you thanks for the wisdom that you teach us through Jacob and Laban, uh, through his Laban's cruelty and and Jacob's uh sin and your mercy on him. We pray that you would keep us in this wisdom until we attain to the glory of seeing you face to face. For we ask this all through Christ our Lord. Amen. Bless we the Lord. Thanks be to God.